3: Pee-wee Gaskins was a master manipulator who befriended many of his victims on the way to becoming South Carolina's most notorious mass murderer. He stabbed, shot, drowned, and poisoned more than a dozen people. And for his final act, he used dynamite in a brazen murder-for-hire scheme while his victim was on death row. Pee-wee conned everyone around him, and charmed one unwitting accessory to assist in his final brutal deed.
4: When he plugs that sound of a bitch up and blow him
5: on in the hell. I only know more than a dozen people that he actually killed. He went back inside and shot
6: both of them with a shotgun. Just outright murder.
7: I have always felt... There's there's something that makes these people unlike you and me.
3: From iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures, this is Pee-wee Gaskins was not my friend. I'm Jeff Keating. Bill and Murdy Moon married in 1950, when they were both 19 years old. Murdy had a son from a previous relationship, Tony Simo. Bill adopted Tony, and he and Murdy had two more daughters. After 20 years in the Air Force, including several tours in Vietnam, Master Sergeant Bill Moon retired from the military. They moved to the quiet fishing town of Murrells Inlet, South Carolina, and opened up a two-pump gas station and convenience store. The Moons catered to locals in search of some groceries, gas for their cars and boats, or a quick conversation. They were more than store owners in a village. They were well-known and well-loved. They convinced their brother Tony to join the rest of the family in South Carolina's low country. He did, and three generations of moons lived within a half-mile of each other. They were at the intersection of everything. Tyner had entered the moon grocery several times in previous days. On his last visit, he wielded a shotgun and demanded money. This is Ira Parnell. He was an investigator with SLED... South Carolina State Law Enforcement Division. He testified at the trial that Tyner took what money they were counting and left the Moons in shock.
6: What I know about it was that Rudolph Tyner went in and robbed them, little mom and pop store. He had already gotten what money or whatever he was going to steal and had left. He was out the door and then went back inside and shot both of them with a shotgun. Just outright murder. No reason for it whatsoever. Other than just plain mean. He apparently thought better of leaving a witness. So he went back and shot both of them and killed them right there. Just brutally killed them.
3: Tyner ran outside to a car driven by his lookout, Carlton Davis. The two drove off into the South Carolina night. Tony Simo was in his trailer watching television when Rudolph Tiner killed his parents. He had finished his day as a brick mason, and he was watching Rio Lobo, starring John Wayne when his pit bull barked outside. He glanced out the window, having no idea that his parents' killer could have just driven past. He went back to his movie, and minutes later, two teenagers walked into the store, thinking they were going to get some snacks for the night and instead discovered the dead bodies behind the counter. They ran out screaming and called for help. Rudolf Tyner was 18 years old when he killed Bill and Murdy Moon. He was born in Harlem, raised in community housing, and caused considerable problems within his own family. He had several run-ins with the law before he stole a car and drove south down Interstate 95 the week before the killings. He showed up at Carlton Davis's house unannounced, and stayed with him for days leading up to the tragic event. After the robbery-turned-murder, Carlton Davis and Rudolph Tyner drove to Carlton's dad's house one mile from the store. Mr. Davis immediately became suspicious that something bad had gone down, this was not Carlton's first involvement with crime, and he knew his son had been hanging out with Tyner. Within minutes, cops arrived and questioned Carlton, who immediately told them about Tyner. They also found a shotgun and a shotgun shell in Tyner's pocket that matched one found at the crime scene. Tyner and Carlton were arrested. Both men signed confessions by the next morning. Davis confessed to being an accomplice to murder. Tyner confessed to the two murders, and Tony Simo raged. The small coastal community mourned the brutal murders of Bill and Murdy Moon. Tyner was spared no ill will by anyone who talked about the crime. Reporters could find quotes about him from anyone in the area. A public defender at the time resigned to avoid having to defend Tyner. He was then hired by the Simo family to ensure Tyner got the maximum sentence. By August 1978, five months after the robbery-turned-murder, Rudolf Tyner was on trial. Prosecutors showed that Tyner had cast a check at the store and made a small purchase the day before the murders as evidence that he had scouted the store. They also recounted how Tyner had stayed in Davis' home for a few days before the crime. The gun police found on Tyner was exhibited in the courtroom, along with the shotgun shell he had in his pocket. Prosecutors played the audio recording of Tyner's confession, and finally, they sought the death penalty. Court records revealed that defense attorneys presented a brain scan taken when Tyner was six years old that experts said showed developmental abnormalities. In effect, they said he had the mental capacity of a seven-year-old. His mother testified that he suffered brain damage at age eight. She said that he was scared into a murder confession by police who made him strip naked. Tyner's attorney argued, quote, the capacity of the defendant to appreciate the criminality of his conduct was substantially impaired. End quote. His abilities functioning in society were limited. The defense argued for life in prison since he had an IQ of 80 and was fundamentally unable to understand the charges leveled against him when he signed the confession. Tyner was convicted of murder and sentenced to die in South Carolina's electric chair. Tony Simo told the press that he believed justice would prevail with the death penalty sentence. But under South Carolina law, Tyner was given an automatic appeal to the state Supreme Court. The court found error in the sentencing phase of the trial, and in 1979, one year after the murders, ordered the sentencing phase be reheld. As new hearings continued throughout the year, Simo laid awake at night, thinking of ways to kill Rudolf Tyner. The sentencing retrial ended abruptly, and the court ordered the trial to be moved to another county so they could try to find an unbiased jury. Tony, inflamed by the ongoing process, told the press, I dreamed constantly about him laughing while my mother begged for her life. I kept seeing my mother and father laying in pools of blood. At the retrial, Tony Simo had to relive the details of his parents' murder one more time. He was so overcome with raw emotion that he leapt at Tyner in the courthouse hallway and a struggle ensued. Simo later said, I got Tyner once in that little courthouse, him smiling at me and my sisters. I grabbed him by the handcuffs and I got him one good between the legs before they wrestled me to the ground. They finally calmed Simo down, and he was taken away. Some people thought he was heroic in taking action. There was definitely public support for him. The retrial brought a second conviction and death sentence. Tony Simo fumed, while Rudolph Tyner was left breathing in prison. Simo spent his nights in bars retelling the story to anyone who would listen. He lost all faith in the legal system, all faith that the state would carry out the execution and bring an end to his family's suffering. He was going to find a way to bring his own justice. Simo told reporters that Rudolf Tyner just point-blank robbed and shot my parents. I didn't see any end in sight to the appeals. Jack Martin, a co-worker, eventually put him in touch with Gerald McCormick, who was serving time in cell block one at Central Correctional Institute. And Gerald McCormick knew someone with the experience and motivation to pull off a contract killing. And with that, the hit on Tyner was in motion. Rudolph Tyner was incarcerated near Columbia, South Carolina, at the Central Corrections Institution known as CCI. It had been the state's primary prison since the Civil War. A massive stone structure, it housed more than 500 total prisoners. It also held all the state's death row inmates. In the summer of 1982, Tyner was awaiting a ruling on his third death sentence appeal when, incredibly, He was placed in a cell near South Carolina's most notorious killer, Donald Henry Pee-wee Gaskins. Pee-wee Gaskins had been in CCI since he was convicted of a single murder in 1976. He was also given the death penalty. Legends about Pee-wee bordered on absurd. Pee-wee claimed to have killed 110 people, hitchhikers by the dozens, on a killing spree through Florida. Most of the stories about him didn't bring indictments, charges, or convictions. There are, however, some verified facts about him. This is Cecil Chandler, who covered the Pee Wee Gaskin story in 1975 for TV 13 in Florence, South Carolina.
5: You know, when I first started doing the stories, I used to have people call me all the time wanting to know more information about Pee Wee Gaskins. And, you know, I could only tell them what I knew about him and the stories that we did on him. They were just so intrigued with it. And I did this thing for public television. We did something. And then another station out of another company from down under wanted to do something about him being a mass murderer and wanted to say he killed hundreds of people. And I told them they kept trying to make me say that. And I, I wouldn't say it. I said, I only know more than a dozen people that he actually.
3: A year after Pee Wee was sentenced to die in South Carolina's electric chair, legal technicalities sent the case to the South Carolina Supreme Court. His death sentence was revoked and sent back to court for a resentencing trial. Here's a reporter from one of the local news stations covering the story.
5: The impact of today's
3: ruling may not be immediately known. However, Warden Strickland says that he feels the cases will have to be reviewed by the judiciary system for resentencing. And public opinion may be sharply divided on this issue, as indicated by the Supreme Court's five to four split decision. Some people are likely to say that the decision
5: came too late, while others will say it is still too soon. Hal
3: Boykin, Channel 10 News. Public and political outcry erupted at the ruling people thought justice was subverted. Before he could get back on death row by another sentencing trial, Pee Wee cut a deal with prosecutors. He pled guilty to nine other murders to avoid the electric chair. The outcry shifted to the prosecutors who made the deal. Solicitor Ken Summerford told local press that trying the remaining cases would have been too expensive. He and the other prosecutors worried that future trials might not result in the death sentence. This is Margaret O'Shea. She was a reporter for The Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina, and covered the Pee Wee Gaskin story for years. Here she is describing intriguing aspects of Pee Wee's story.
7: Every time in my career... When I have dealt with people who've committed horrible crimes or or people who are caught up in, in the justice system, rightly or wrongly, families of victims, from early, early on, I felt a great need to try to tell the whole story. As the years went on, and I worked on these stories about Pee Wee, I would like very much to have been able to know more about his life from birth on, because I have always felt there's something that makes these people unlike you and me. There's just something there. And I've learned over the years that many times, if you dig for it, you see things that somebody maybe could have done something about or made a change.
5: When you think about Pee Wee Gaskins, you think about how can he kill an infant kid? That's what really bothers me. And then the younger people, uh, a 15-year-old that he killed, I mean, this is something you never know what's going through somebody's mind. But in his mind, what was going through his mind? He just killed whoever he wanted to that did wrong to him or, you know, didn't like him or said something bad to him. You know, he would kill him.
7: I don't know if there are good ways to go, <laughs> but some of the details of some of the murders were bothersome to me. They seemed torturous, unduly cruel. You know, it wasn't like he set out to kill somebody and he just shot them once or he, you know, hit them once or stabbed them once. <laughs> you know, it feels like he took his time with some of these people. And I always find that troublesome when I read it or hear it.
3: Ultimately, authorities connected 14 murders to Pee Wee Gaskins. The press labeled him the meanest man in America. They used monikers such as redneck Charles Manson because of the dominance and control he had over other people in his circle in North Charleston. He wielded this same power around Prospect, South Carolina as well, where he owned a few trailers and a large plot of land. He manipulated the police, his lawyers, and people in CCI. Here's Cecil Chandler.
5: He really could... Con people. I'm going to use that word. I think Pee Wee Gaskins could con people and he would get them to like him. And, uh, you know, if you sat down and talked with him and didn't know anything about his background of uh, the murders or anything, you would kind of think he's just, well, he's just a normal guy. And uh, I think he just kind of conned people and they got to like him and they'd give him a job and, you know, and he would go on about his life.
7: I think what strikes me about his victims was that most of them. However long or however briefly they knew him, didn't have a whole lot of reason to be afraid of him that they knew of. They were not aware of his activities outside the sphere that they shared with him. But it didn't take much (laughs) to find out the truth about him. And then they were gone.
3: Pee-wee killed friends work associates, family members, and people who crossed him. Some people around North Charleston and Prospect, South Carolina knew about his murders. Some of them died for talking about them. He killed people who betrayed or failed him in some way. And, after his arrest and trial, everyone in South Carolina, whether they knew him or not, had opinions about his story. It wasn't difficult to get locals to talk on camera.
5: And I did find out that a lot of these people kind of pumped it up a little bit to make it more exciting, you know, for the story to to get on television. And you couldn't believe all of it, but you took what you could and you worked with it. But sometimes it was a little more than you could really actually put on TV. And I found out a lot of things about Pee Wee Gaskins. Found out he drove a hearse and he rode around all the time. And he hung out at this little small grocery store. I learned more about him. At that grocery store, I think that little small place, than I did anywhere else.
3: It was the 1970s. Southern rock filled the airwaves, and sulfur wafted in the breeze around South Carolina low country. Pee Gaskins drove his black hearse around the dirt roads lined with oaks, weighted by Spanish moss, and doom followed him. Here's Cecil Chandler reflecting on the lives. Pee-wee snuffed out.
5: I did not actually know any of the victims. Uh, I knew of the cut girl from Sumter, whose father was in the legislature when they found her body and connected it with Pee-wee Gaskins. But a lot of times the... Victims are not talked about a lot. We mentioned it in our stories, talking about them some, but we didn't go into detail as to who they were. And uh, that's the sad part about reporting. When you're doing television, it's such a short time period that you have to deal with. And uh, you really just go into the murdering and uh, you actually just mention the victim's name. And that's the sad part about reporting. But let me tell you. When I finally got into meeting him after he was captured and everything, he was just a short guy, a little squeaky voice, and uh, he, he, you know, he didn't look like he could be what they called a serial killer.
4: Ever since I can remember, my mother lived with her mother and daddy. There was 13 in the family, eight boys and five girls. Then my mother had uh, this little boy named Vernis who died. Then Marvin, myself, and Perry Leigh Uh And we all lived there also. So that was uh, about 16 that was living there in one house.
3: This is Pee Wee Gaskins, speaking in 1991.
4: But I was the one who the older ones picked on, and I was kicked around all the time, too. And made uh at nights, uh, they would make me take a big old wooden foot to fill it with water, and I had to wash everybody's feet thorough. And if I did anything that any of my uncles or aunts didn't like, they would take a hedge bush switch or a pear tree sprout or an apple tree sprout. As long as it was a good switch, and they'd tear my back and legs up. It would be red spots all over my body.
6: Peavy was, uh, I think, at most five feet. Slightly built. I think he weighed about 140, maybe 145. Jet black hair.
3: So this is Dr. Jim Beatty, professor and writer. Describing a visit he had with Pee Wee Gaskins in 1982 on cell block two at Central Correctional Institution.
6: He was not gray-headed, wiry, strong, clothes were clean and immaculate. And um, the smallest hands, uh, adult hands that I had ever shaken or felt. Uh, And you could feel his um, karate chop hand the right hand where he hit hit the bed every night a hundred times to build up his uh, karate chop ability. And he loved to brag about the boards he could break.
3: Dr. Beatty also knew Bill and Murdy Moon before they were killed by Rudolph Tyner. Dr. Beatty really liked Bill Moon and asked him on two occasions to take a class with him at Coastal Carolina.
6: I taught at Coastal Carolina University and back in those days we had old-fashioned registrations where people stand in line and sign up with faculty members. I had the good occasion at least two semesters of registering Bill Moon and I liked this guy so much because he was so outgoing and very articulate and just uh, as affable and, and gracious um, and effusive as he possibly uh, could be. And I was attracted to him. And uh, I asked him to sign up for one of my English classes. And he said, oh, no, no, no. said, I've heard about you. He said, you won't let me say I seen him when he done it, will you?
3: When he learned about the Moon murders in 1978, he was heartbroken. Crushed. Crushed.
6: And in the, in the here about his devotion to his stepson, Tony Simo, and to his wife. Bill Moon was a marvelous man, a marvelous, marvelous individual. And to have been taken down like that was absolutely outrageous. In
3: 1982, when Dr. Beatty was interviewing Pee Wee, Tyner walked by in the common area of cell block 2. The first time that I ever encountered Rudolph Tyner
6: in conversation with Pee-wee, he put his hand over my arm and said, Look, look, Mr. Jim, look, look. I said, What? What? He said, That's Rudolph Tyner. That's Rudolph Tyner. He didn't curse. He said, He's the man that killed your friend. And I got a look at the back of this young African-American moving down the hall, uh, actually toward the drink machine, I believe. And he says, watch, he'll be coming back in just a minute. And surely enough, he points him out again. And then he said, I could blow him away if I had my 30-30 right here. So his uh, true feelings came out at the sight of Rudolf Tyner. Rudolph violated every single tenet of Pee Wee's code. He was a teenager out of line. He's black. He's born wrong. He murdered two white people, which is the ultimate violation of the Pee Wee Code.
8: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health.
1: Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit Lisa.com slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart.
3: Tony Simo hated Rudolph Tyner, and he had the public support. He received a hero's welcome after he kicked Tyner in the crotch as they walked into one of the murderer's hearings but that was nothing compared to what he ultimately had in store for Tyner. He found the connection he needed to execute his plan at the Central Corrections Institute. Gerald McCormick was serving time in Cell Block 1 at CCI and knew the infamy of the trustee of Cell Block 2, Peewee Gaskins. Here's Dr. Jim Beatty talking about Peewee's role as the prison trustee.
6: He was a trustee and he hadn't... The run of the place, and this came about as a result of the fact that he was a con artist, as polished a con artist as you've ever seen, was my experience. Peewee was reliable. He did what he said he would do. Trustworthy,
3: which is as ironic as it possibly can be. Holly Gatlin interviewed Peewee on several occasions when she was working as a police reporter for the Morning News in Florence, South Carolina, in the 1980s. Here she is talking about Pee Wee being the trustee of Cell Block Two.
9: Pee Wee was the building man. You know, Pee Wee was very good at at doing things. I mean, he he knew what he was doing. He could fix things. So there was some degree of of trust among the security officers, the prison officers, you know, the prisons to a certain extent. Are run, the institution, is run by the inmates.
3: Pee Wee Gaskins was serving nine consecutive life sentences and became a prison trustee in the six years he'd been at CCI. He moved between different areas of the cell block, including death row, which was directly behind his own cell. He performed repairs, made deliveries, and made himself useful. People sought Pee Wee out for his mobility. He had the run of the cell block. Everyone knew him, and he knew everyone. This included Rudolph Tyner, whose cell on death row was close behind the meanest man in America. That proximity allowed them to communicate from their cells by yelling through the vents. But Pee-wee's generosity was all a part of a ruse to get close to Tyner. Pee-wee had a knack for befriending people and then punishing them. As Dr. Beatty said, Pee-wee Gaskins did not like Tyner at all. Here's Pee-wee talking about Rudolph Tyner, who was on death row. He's kind to
4: thinks that if he asks you to do anything, you supposed to do it. Well, I'm one that I don't let nobody tell me what I can do and what I can't do. And he's the one that used to come by my cell and talk about, you know, he was going to kill himself and all that. And I told him he wanted to die so damn bad, to, to stay in his cell third of when we go to church. And I'd come by and cut his damn throat for him. And, and he said, you would, wouldn't you? I said, you're damn right. And he never said nothing about wanting to die no more to me.
3: Peewee didn't take too well to people trying to tell him what to do. He knifed and shot people for the smallest insult or tone he took the wrong way. And Tyner was trying to do it in prison, a guy Peewee already hated because he was a black man who killed two white people. And when he started talking about wanting to kill himself, Peewee was all too happy to oblige. In fact, he offered to do it while the other inmates were at a Thursday church service.
9: I think Pee-wee was addicted to killing. And when he found another opportunity to kill somebody, he was very willing to take it. I'll tell you what he told me one time. You know, the, some of his phrases stick in my mind. He said, I ain't never killed nobody that didn't need killing.
3: Tony Simo thought Rudolph Tyner needed killing for years he sought revenge and then got in touch with someone inside cci to help him deliver his own brand of justice through gerald mccormick simo hired peewee gaskins to kill rudolph tyner mccormick made several collect calls to simo to arrange details and payment then one day in 1982 peewee called simo's house directly a collect call from cell block 2 at CCI. The telephone operator identified the caller as Gerald McCormick, but it was Pee Wee who was on the line and said, quote, this is the doctor calling you, end quote.
4: Hello? I have a telephone call to Tony from General McCormick Will you accept? Yes, I will. Thank you. Are you Tony? Yes. Thank you. Tony? Yeah. Gerald wanted me to call you, said can you just start the caller you? Uh-huh. So I come up with something, told him that I would call you if he wanted me and tell you if you'll send it. It can't be no damn making sick on it. I need I need one electric cap and as much of a stick of damn dynamite as you can get. I'll take a damn radio and rig it in the bomb the way he plugs it up. That son of a bitch will go off and there won't be no damn coming back on that.
3: Pee Wee requested as much dynamite as Simo could deliver him. And he would take care of Tyner once and for all. He was going to rig it into a radio. Here's how Tony Simo was to get explosives into the prison.
4: Uh, if we can get a... Electric radio, you know, just got to put a good-sized speaker in it that you can't see in. Yeah. Just take that damn thing and tape it up into something and put it in the front of the speaker up against it and tape it where it won't shake. Yeah. And just put it in an old electric radio just got to put a good-sized speaker in it and, and mail it to me or even mail it to him. But just make sure, you know, that it looks like it ain't been tampered with or nothing bad and get it up to him and damn it if I don't give it to him and, and when he plugs that son of a bitch up, it'll blow him on in to hell.
3: Pee-wee wanted a radio with dynamite taped inside the speaker. He would then rig the radio with a wire to detonate when Tyner plugged it in.
4: One electric cap and as much of a stick you can get in as good as you can get. He told me to call you maybe over the weekend you can find one stick somewhere and get it to me damn if I can't fix him up. Okay, well, uh, I, I'll probably get these plastic explosives. Well, i would be good. I can handle as long as I got that electric cap where it'll go off when
3: uh, he plugs it in the wall socket. All the troubles will be over with. All the troubles will be over with. It was September 1982, and they were talking about getting dynamite into a prison. It sounds crazy to even say it. I mean prison, a radio, a wire, and some dynamite. A fellow inmate later testified that on September 12th, Pee-wee instructed him to deliver to Rudolf Tyner what appeared to be a radio-type speaker built into a plastic cup. He delivered the cup and a message. Tyner should connect that cup to the wire Pee-wee had run to a cell through the ventilation system. The two of them would be able to talk directly instead of having to yell through the vent. Prison House Ingenuity. So Tyner got the cup, connected that wire that extended through the vent to Pee-wee's cell. As he was told, he yelled through the vent when it was connected, and then he held the cup up to his right ear.
1: Kiwi Gaskins Was Not My Friend is a joint production from iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures. Produced and hosted by Jeff Keating. Executive producers are Courtney DeFries and Noel Brown. Written by Jim Roberts, Courtney DeFries, and Terry James. Edit, mix, and sound design by Jeremiah Kulani-Prescott. Music composed by Diamond Street Productions, Spencer Garn and Ian Newberry. Special thanks to Jim and Anita Beatty. slash iHeart.